this is definitely a question with coronavirus as well. There's a god awful amount of disinformation around this, so it's like whack a mole with this. There's so many things coming out. There's so many threads of disinformation that is impossible to keep up. But you know, it, a lot of this takes a little bit of intuition about、um, if you see something that could later on get more traction, you think that could then catch up and you know maybe become a Facebook meme or whatever.、Um, kind of pulling out the weeds early is helpful. But again, if you,、uh, depending on your outlet, if you give oxygen to something, if you are a,、um, a think tank who published an article about an obscure article on a Russian propaganda site, well, all of a sudden now that Russian propaganda site has a badge of honor, right? This thing, you know, this is what they don't want you to hear. They're coming at us, you know. They're、um, NATO wants to censor us because we're telling the truth, kind of a thing. So it's it's very sensitive about when、um, the threshold of reporting on something versus just ignoring and letting it die its own natural death. I'm Quinta Jurecic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May seventh, two thousand and twenty. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck and Alina Polyakova spoke with Eric Toller of Bellingcat, a collective that has quickly become the gold standard for open source and social media investigations. Eric recently published a blog post in response to a New York Times article on Russian influence campaigns. When retweeted by former President Barack Obama, no less, the Eric titled "How Not to Report on Disinformation." Evelyn and Alina asked him about the article and what exactly he thought was wrong with it, as a case study in the challenges for reporters writing about disinformation campaigns. When are reporters helping to uncover threats to democracy, and when are they giving oxygen to fringe actors? It's the Lawfare Podcast. Eric Toller on how not to report on disinformation. Eric Toller, thank you very much for joining us today.、Um, you've been with Bellingcat since 2014. Maybe we can start by you telling us a little bit about Bellingcat itself. What does it do? Sure. So Bellingcat started, as you mentioned, 2014,、um, back off of a Kickstarter or Indiegogo. I can't remember which project from our founder,、um, Elliot Higgins. He had been blogging for quite a while by himself, just kind of as an enthusiast. Under pseudonym Brown Moses, named after a Frank Zappa song, not yeah, not、um, anything more insidious than that. And he has been doing this kind of digital investigation, open source stuff, which we'll talk more about later,、um, as a hobby for、um, quite a few years. And his idea for Bellingcat was to have kind of a single site hub where he can gather a bunch of these amateur enthusiasts, kind of you know, digital sleuths or whatever you want to call them, into one place and have them you know contribute, write. Um, and also hosts a number of pedagogical educational materials, you know, guides, case studies, walkthroughs, things like that.、Um, so we started back in 2014、um, with that, and Elliot had mostly been working on、um, the wars in Syria and Libya up until the launch of, of、um, Bellingcat. And so most of the work he had done is around arms identification,、um, weapons trafficking. Kind of his big break was he had a story in the New York Times、um, where he looked into Saudi、um, weapon shipments into Syria through、uh, via Croatia, I believe. He did this just through, you know, obsessively watching videos, tracking、um, serial numbers of weapons and things like that. But、um, soon, Bellingcat, once it launched in July 2014, it expanded beyond Syria and Libya pretty quickly,、um, especially with the outbreak of the war in eastern Ukraine.、Um, our investigations of that were kind of our big first, like public coming out party, I guess you could say. Reached a lot of attention, so yeah, it started in 2014 as kind of a hub for kind of amateur investigators, digital sleuths, and it's、um, expanded and snowballed over the last six years. And now we 
have an actual budget and supervisory board and all those fun administrative things. And we cover topics from all over the world, not just um, conflict zones in Libya, Syria, and Ukraine. Thanks, Eric. And just to give folks some context, Bellingcat, mm -hmm. uh, not to, I think, I don't think I'll be overstating it when I say mm -hmm. that it has really become the gold standard when it comes to doing what many people now refer to as digital forensics mm -hmm. or open source investigations or OSINT. Um, I came across Elliot's work back in the day when uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was happening and some of the early work that we did together um, when I was back at the Atlantic Council in 2015 uh, was looking at how we apply these tools to counter uh, disinformation narratives. Um, mm -hmm. They were coming out from Russia at the time that uh, Russian soldiers were not involved in the conflict in Ukraine. And some of the work that you and Elliot did at that time in the report we all did together um, really showed how you can use these methods and get verifiable information and data and analytics to disprove what at the time was uh, a state-run propaganda or disinformation campaign. And I think the growth of Bellingcat over the last six years has just been incredible. And it really is becoming, it has become the gold standard for these kinds of techniques. But to give folks a little more information, you know, what is digital forensics and OSINT? Can you give us just a quick definition? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's both an old and kind of a new idea. So um, at the very most basic level, it's doing um, investigations, usually long form investigations using um, so-called open source materials. And these are materials that by definition, are equally accessible to the research analyst, journalist, and the reader. So the idea, uh, this kind of utopian vision is there's transparency and you know, the reader is able to verify the information and analyze it on the same um, playing field as the journalist or the analyst. Um, but what it looks like a little more specifically is people going through endless numbers of YouTube videos and social media posts and databases and satellite apps and trying to piece them together events. Um, so when you think about, you know, OSINT or open source intelligence, this goes back, you know, God knows how far librarians, right, are open source research to a degree. Um, the BBC had a monitoring effort back World War II, um, looking at open source materials around Germany and so on um, to understand the world better. But as it looks right now, it's most often applied to or most publicly around conflict investigations, but it also is used widely in corruption investigations and environmental research and um, Every every which way you can imagine of you know ranging from social media stalking um, to maybe use the not so benevolent term for it to you know monitoring climate change um, you know coastlines and satellite maps and things like that so it's a very 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 broad concept that's been around for a while but as it exists now kind of the branding that's been put onto it is using vast amounts of openly available digital information and piecing together um, investigations and um, you know ways of looking at the world um, from it. Okay, great. So we wanted to do sort of a case study of what you do and on reporting on disinformation through the use of a recent New York Times story. Um, this was dramatically titled Putin's Long War Against American Silence, um, and it was tweeted out by President Barack Obama, no less. Um, and you wrote a blog post in response to this saying this is a, you know, a great example of how not to report on disinformation. Um, but before we get to that, let's start with the story itself. To put the story at its highest, you know, in its best light, what was sort of the, the point of this story? What did it say? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a um, kind of two-pointed story for the most part. So the first part is kind of looking at the historical, I don't know, um, actions and movements of the Russian security services in Russian state to, or the Soviet state, I guess I shouldn't say Russian, to spread disinformation around health narratives and diseases and so on in the U.S. and the West. And kind of one of the linchpins about this is disinformation that the Soviet Soviets ran around HIV and AIDS um, back um, decades ago. Um, and then trying to try to build a bridge from that um, using kind of flimsily um, Putin kind of as, you know, with his KGB past and his um, FSB evolution now being president, of course, kind of building a bridge with him from the Soviet era efforts all the way to today with um, disinformation around the coronavirus. And the historical information, I mean, you know, that's that people go to the archives and it's kind of settled around the HIV AIDS um, work back or disinformation back in the 70s and 80s, uh, mostly in the 80s. But um, the stuff around the coronavirus is a little bit shakier, and um, we can get into this in a little more detail. But the maybe the most criticism I had was um, the disproportionate um, treatment of you know very high level state sponsored efforts to spread disinformation around HIV and so on. And the evidence that was used in this investigation, which were um, very, very obscure, small um, blogs and Twitter accounts spreading disinformation and kind of putting them on the same level as um, KGB Soviet state-sponsored operations. So you wrote a response to this, um, as Evelyn mentioned, in Mm -hmm. a blog post called How Not to Report on Disinformation. It's really detailed, and uh, we want to go through all the small points you make. But let's kind of get into uh, point-counterpoint conversation as uh, to the New York Times article, you already started mentioning what you think it got wrong. I think one of the first points you make um, in your blog post is a response to the New York Times article. You say that one of the first mistakes it makes is that it elevates and gives attention to inconsequential examples. Um, you specifically talk about uh, the example that is mentioned in your Times article of the Russophile site. Can you talk about that site, what the New York Times said about it, and what you think they got wrong? Yeah, so the Russophile is uh, back kind of pre-Twitter, kind of in the nascent part of Twitter. There's a big, Elena, um, you probably are aware of these people, there's a big blogging scene around, um, mostly English language blogging scene around Russia watchers. So there's a lot of relatively high profile people who came out of that. Julia, Julia Yaffe was one of these bloggers back when um, Kevin Rothrock um, was another um, big one who's at Medusa now. Um, a handful of other people, Sean Guillory um, and some others. And the Russophile is kind of in the same milieu of people, though, of course, on the uh, pro-Kremlin, pro-Putin, so on side, rather than the more critical stuff. So there was the uh, Russophile, and there's also the Russophobe, who was kind of the <laughs> mirror image, I guess, of the Russophile. And um, this is uh, some guy named Carl. He's a Swedish guy who lives... Um, I think he lives in, I think he still lives in Russia. Um, some Swedish guy named Carl who has been blogging for quite a while on a pretty obscure site. Like, again, if you, unless you know kind of this, this community of kind of uh, bloggers, you know, back when people were on LiveJournal um, and Blogspot and so on, you probably haven't heard of this guy, um, this Carl. He has like 5,000 followers on Twitter. And yeah, he's pretty inconsequential outside of this very small circle. And on the the story that the New York Times highlighted was a tweet that he sent out um, on his account, um, which was from an aggregator. So the Russophile is a Twitter account um, who also runs two sites. He runs a blog where he like has his own original stuff and an aggregator site where he just like, um, it's like a script that automatically shares stories from sources that he likes. So RTs, Sputnik, 
globalresearch.ca, um, probably like Infowars, you know, kind of these French, um, either Russian state or French pro-Russian sites. And one of the um, stories that he um, reposted through his aggregator and then posted a link to on his Twitter account was a story from um, this um, French kind of like anti-vax, you know, health site that had some um, coronavirus conspiracy information in it. And the New York Times article boosted this tweet. It had one retweet and two faves, two favorites. So it had three engagements in total as being kind of an, an example of, you know, flagrant um, Russian disinformation about the coronavirus. But it, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons why this is a little shaky. For one, he didn't even write the article. He was just, he was just resharing. Uh, he was tweeting out a link to an aggregated copy of it from some other site that's not even Russian. And also, um, if the New York Times had not written about this, no one would have, I mean, who knows if anyone actually clicked and read through the article in the first place, right? Let alone it being on the pages of the, you know, the paper of record uh, that Obama later shared. So this is all to say that this is New York Times, this story is read hundreds of thousands, you know, who knows, maybe millions of times because Obama, probably not millions, probably doesn't get that kind of reach, um, quite a few times through Obama's um, boosting of it. And it pointed out a tweet with three engagements from an aggregator site um, as an example of Russian Russian disinformation, kind of in the same um, wavelength as complex KGB operations that spread disinformation around HIV um, and AIDS back in the 80s. So it's just a question of proportion um, of context that was totally lost here. Yeah, it just gets to a really fascinating general point of the role of the media in reporting on disinformation generally and how to navigate that line and, you know, what the responsibility is of, of major organizations, you know, in wanting to cover something that's happening, um, but also not draw attention to it. I mean, this seems like an obvious extreme yeah. example of like three followers or, or whatever just seems, um, seems crazy. But, you know, I, I, I guess a lot of the reporting around disinformation can often be quite breathless and sensationalized. Do you think this is like, is this something that you see more generally? Is this a general trend or do you think this was an extreme example of, you know, a one-off kind of or a hyper example of the mistake? I'm a bit of both. Um, it's a really important point that you raise about um, kind of giving oxygen to these things. So this is kind of one of the main struggles that people who do work on disinformation struggle with is when do you shine a spotlight onto pieces of disinformation? So there's kind of a, a, a shifting, very um, unclear uh, boundary to when it kind of crosses over from this is something that's inconsequential and should not even be talked about to this is something that um, is actually influencing people's brains. It's actually getting spread. Um, it's getting real oxygen and it needs to be debunked or pointed out. And that threshold is different for everybody. Everyone has a different idea of like when that goes. So maybe it's like a tweet has 100 engagements, right? Or maybe it's like, oh, a tweet is then embedded into a story from a larger news place like Breitbart or Fox or whatever. And other people just, you know, you report on everything, right? Because you see something that's interesting and you report on it just as a sick of it being, you know, interesting. Um, so it's a very, very tough line to cross of when, when do you cross over and report on something and bring attention to it and talk about it on your larger platform? Because ideally, um, if you're doing this disinformation work, you're platform is probably bigger than the places that you're reporting on. Not always, but often. So the New York Times is unquestionably a bigger platform than the Russophiles aggregator blog and Twitter feed with 5,000 followers. So that definitely did not pass any of the um, tests of the, um, I don't know, the impact or the threshold of when to report on something. Um, but if you're kind of a smaller, like more more boutique um, investigative outlet, so Bellingcat, I guess you could call it this, and other people who do you know their own posts on things like Medium and stuff, then the line is a little bit blurrier because if you find um, 
you know, some piece of disinformation that's especially interesting, both in very small engagements, you know, engaging it and amplifying and talking about it in the context of disinformation is a little bit different, different question because you're, you're probably not giving oxygen to people who would then go to this and be influenced by it, right? The New York Times could draw people to things and have them have their minds change. But someone who's reading a kind of very in the weeds analysis disinformation probably isn't going to click onto, you know, a Russophile link and then have their mind changed or be influenced or whatever. Um, and so this is a this is definitely a question with coronavirus as well. There's a god awful amount of disinformation around this. So it's like whack-a-mole with this. There's so many things coming out. There's so many threads of disinformation that it's impossible to keep up. But you know, it, a lot of this takes a little bit of intuition about um, if you see something that could later on get more traction, you think that could then catch up and you know maybe become a Facebook meme or whatever. Um, kind of pulling out the weeds early is helpful. Um, you know, think people like Snopes. You know, they handle this kind of full time. But again, if you, uh, depending on your outlet, if you give oxygen to something, if you are a, um, a think tank who post, published an article about an obscure article on a Russian propaganda site, well, all of a sudden now that Russian propaganda site has a badge of honor, right? This thing, you know, this is what they don't want you to hear. They're coming at us, you know, they're, um, NATO wants to censor us because we're telling the truth kind of a thing. So it's, it's very sensitive that when um, the threshold of reporting on something versus just ignoring and letting it die its own natural death. So Eric, you just put a lot on the table and I kind of want to unpack what you just said a little bit before we go back to the case study of the article, because there's even more there than just the Russophile oh, yeah. that we can pick through. But, you know, a couple of things you said I want to pick up on. Um, the first is about kind of just the general impact of these kinds of accounts. And we had a very fascinating podcast that we recorded with Thomas Wren around his new book. And one of the things he said um, in, in that interview was that, he had gone through all of the data investigative work that we've had out there on uh, the Russian activities via the IRA and then GRU around the U.S. elections. And his main conclusion, which uh, he said, you know, is controversial, and I think that is correct, is that it had very little impact uh, on kind of shifting the narrative and certainly on changing the electoral outcomes of, Mm -hmm. of the U.S. election. And You also just brought up this idea of impact, right? That um, a lot of times it's by giving more oxygen to what are relatively small accounts on social media kind of does us a disservice in a way uh, because it not only overstates their impact, uh, but also uh, potentially drives more followers or more attention um, to these entities that otherwise they wouldn't have had. And this gets us to a really a set of interesting questions. I think one is about the responsibility that you alluded to of major outlets versus, you know, smaller platforms or blogging sites like Medium. So the New York Times is obviously very different than Mediums. And so you have a different responsibility as a major outlet. So it's one question that um, would be interesting to get you to pick up on. And I think uh, the other one is about the question of exposure, because in this podcast as well, one of the things we talked about a lot, and it's also what uh, some of the social media platforms have started to do over the last few years, um, is expose uh, coordinated and authentic behavior, right? Um, And so the question, to my mind, has been, well, 
by exposing these activities of, of very small actors in many cases. Again, is that really the way to counter disinformation activities? Because by even exposing them, we give them more oxygen. I know there's a whole set of complex questions that border on the line of ethics and morals, <laughs> um, but I'd be keen to kind of get you to say a couple of things about the responsibility piece and about um, the use value of, of exposure and how to think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to have to make it a four part episode to answer a lot of these. I'll go <laughs> yeah. through some of these. In, the proper in 30 trade. seconds, please. 30 <laughs> seconds. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, something that I always like to joke about is uh, the majority of traffic from a lot of these like sites, like people who actually organically watch and engage with RT and Sputnik and stuff, you have more disinfo researchers um, analyzing and reading this stuff than actual normal people who are, who can have their minds changed. Um, and breathlessly reporting on every little movement of RT and Sputnik and um, uh, Zvista and all these other outlets that are not super popular organically um, just gives them more, uh, I don't know, give, gives them kind of a badge of honor, right? And also gives them uh, more oxygen because it, it's, a, it's a cycle. You have, I, I know this because we apply for these grants and we see, we don't always apply for them, but we see them out there. There's a lot, a lot of money out there millions of euros and dollars for doing disinformation research because after the 2016 election it's you know it, it's ever on everyone's minds with brexit and also with the trump election about um, understanding and countering disinformation and there is a lot of money out there about this and it's kind of a new cottage industry of the disinformation analyst and so because of that you know if you receive a you know a two million dollar grant study and countered russian disinformation well you got to put something out right you got to have some deliverables you got to put out a report about it and so because of that, you have people breathlessly reporting on every little thing and every narrative and whether or not it's actually something that's worth reporting on and blowing it. There's a few dissertations being written about that whole cycle, and it's not slowing up anytime soon. Um, but I think that a lot of this is, uh, it's almost like, you know, it, there's a supply and demand, right? So there's there's a, almost a demand for disinformation in a way, and that there's a bigger supply of debunking narratives. And then you have places like RT who can then, you know, Simon Young can then point to her boss and say, look, you know, we scare them. You need to increase our budget by 20% because you have, you know, this report X, Y, and Z that says that RT is this unstoppable machine. Right. And so it's, it's a, it's an ecosystem that fuels itself. And uh, I don't know, it's almost symbiotic between disinformation and disinformation researchers. But again, that's, that's a few dissertations, um, at least two or three of them to be written about all that. Yes, there are many, many dissertations coming out of uh, current world events, I'm sure. Um, mine, at least among them. Um, yeah. So let's go back to the to the case study. Sure. Um, the next thing that you talk about um, is the way that the article discusses bots. And this is something that is increasingly um, becoming talked about in academic circles about how disinformation researchers should assess and talk about um, bots in, in these operations. So... Could you talk about what the New York Times article said and, and your critique of it and what you think the media and public conversation gets wrong about bots in general? Yeah. So to be clear first, uh, it's important to um, separate what a bot is like colloquially versus like actually. So the troll and the bot are not the same persons or not the same thing. A bot is an automated or semi-automated account that will automatically do something. So um, this is very. This is done actually most often with commercial bots and commercial advertising. So you try to get, um, you send out links to some mobile app or some you know online casino or a Bitcoin scam or something like that. 
and there's these bot armies that you can like mercenaries that you can hire um, for like a you know a one-off advertising um, advertising campaign. And these kind of bot armies are often used um, for political or ideological ideological goals too, right? So you try to get a certain tr- hashtag trending through kind of this astroturf campaign, or try to do harass targeted harassment against you know your enemy, or you know try to get um, a story artificially popular. Um, so there's been a lot of state-sponsored bot campaigns. The Saudis are very famously deploy them against people. Um, who they don't like. Um, we saw this actually with the, after the Khashoggi killing. There were these gigantic bot swarms that would be harassing people and um, you know doing mass automatic reports to take down tweets and things like that. And then there were trolls, which are humans um, who actually are like physically typing in things, but they may or may not be authentic opinions. And this is a whole mess of issues. Um, you mentioned earlier about the platforms doing mass takedowns of um, inauthentic networks. And this is a big part of it because um, Facebook has definitely done a good job recently of picking up the game on this and Twitter as well and publishing data and releasing it about these inauthentic campaigns. So Russia is actually just one of many, many offenders. Um, the Saudis are maybe the number one country state who who does these inauthentic campaigns and um, you know troll campaigns and bot campaigns. And also UAE, Qatar, and some others as well do this too. And so for these trolls, these are humans who do it, who may or may not be being paid by either the state or a state-friendly institution. So the IRA, the infamous troll factory, is not actually a state organization. It's just a state-friendly or state-adjacent organization ran by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is not a state actor, but he um, this is his way of paying patronage for his billions of um, um, corrupt government contracts that he receives. Um, this is kind of his way of paying patriotic tax, I guess you could say and also harassing his personal enemies. There's a number of really good news outlets in St. Petersburg, Fontanka probably being the biggest of which, who are constantly investigating Prigozhin because he, he's from Petersburg. And he is trying, he uses these bots and trolls kind of weaponized against his personal enemies along with um, you know, the, the perceived enemies of, of Russia too. So it's important to kind of draw distinctions between actual state actors versus state adjacent actors versus kind of freelance people who just want to, you know, help a certain ideological point. So another example is Mir Sabyanin of Moscow. He has actual paid trolls that he uses for his own personal army. Um, and there are uh, people you can hire, you know, by the gun, like almost like hired guns who can, you can deploy um, for this. And they don't actually really have any ideological leanings, but they just go by what you, you know, pay a few hundred euros and they'll send, you know, for two days, they'll send a few thousand tweets at your personal enemy, I guess, to harass them. So the distinction is important to draw, and a lot of times we're playing catch-up because as soon as we figure out what's happening, well, it happened two years ago, right? We have the data from two years ago, and we finally figure out what happened, and things have evolved since then. So a lot of times we're kind of, you know, it's like looking up in the space, you see the uh, the light of the star, but, you know, that star has actually sent that light 300 million years ago, and we're looking into the past. Um, often it's like that with these troll campaigns, where as soon as we have all the data that we can actually look at and analyze, uh, things have already moved on. That was It's moved, they're on to the next thing, and they've adjusted their uh, behavior or tactics or uh, technology or whatever. So it's uh, constantly playing catch-up um, to a degree, but usually these campaigns are relatively um, imprecise or not too advanced. It's kind of brute force of lots and lots of people tweeting on hashtags. Um, or doing troll campaigns or whatever. But there are, if we can talk about some of the more complex and interesting things they're doing that maybe actually have a little bit more impact. Um, but for the most part, um, the actual real world impact, like you mentioned earlier with Thomas's book, the actual impact on the average person's brain from these campaigns is very small. Um, things that are more interesting, at least to me, 
are some more complex and subtle um, operations. So namely hacking and releasing materials, which does actually get traction and change people's minds. Because if you, you hack stuff, you can release it, and then it gets covered by mainstream press and more um, less alternative outlets who can um, then get information out. Of course, the hacking of um, the DNC campaign is being the prime of this, prime example of this, but there are other examples too. Okay, so why don't you tell us a bit about the sort of more complicated and sophisticated stuff that you just uh, mentioned that they're doing. And I guess, like, we often hear in this space that it's kind of like an arms race and, you know, a cat and mouse game and sort of as you and the platforms get more sophisticated at rooting things out, um, the bad actors also get more sophisticated at sort mm-hmm. of evasion tactics and things like that. So is that um, a trend that you are seeing in, in this space? Yeah. Um, again, we, like I said earlier, we're, we're, we are kind of looking into the past because we, we don't know what they're doing right now at this moment, probably, because things are we're catching, we're doing catch up. Um, but some of the more interesting and subtle things um, we've seen from state actors lately are kind of instead of like mass amounts of bots and trolls, which was before it was quantity over quality. You have, you know, you have a 19 year old or usually a little older, like 22, 23 year old kid in Petersburg who has, you know, 10 fake accounts who then will you know, send out blank number of posts and tweets and whatever. That was kind of the old way that's, I mean, still happening, but kind of the old approach to this. Now it's a little bit more nuanced and more, uh, less quantity and more quality. So there have been a string of takedowns um, from Facebook, Twitter, and also a handful of investigators like for the Stanford Internet Observatory um, looking into fake experts and analysts. So instead of 100 bots, 100 trolls that are all operating under you know one person's or a few people's command you have somebody who creates a fake personality and a fake analyst who will have a you know maybe a portfolio a fake cv a fake linkedin you know like a real fake identity and using this fake analyst um they will then write articles that are to the whatever ideological slant you want or political agenda you want and publish them on frank usually frank but sometimes semi-mainstream outlets um I think, um, I can't remember the site off the top of my head, but there was a recent example of um, this GRU persona. These are kind of like personas that are created often by the Russian security services, but also the troll factory and some semi-state actors. Um, publishing on a bunch of French sites that no one on there is probably having their mind changed. You know, you have like Zero Hedge and uh, Infowars, like that kind of level stuff, but also some kind of uh, more mainstream outlets. Um, I can't remember the site off the top of my head, but there was kind of a left-leaning outlet similar to like The Nation, kind of in that level, I suppose, of popularity, where they got some articles published. Um, and then eventually it turned out that it was um, a fake persona. They took it down. They did their own internal investigations and published it. Um, but this is kind of a good way if, you know, if you're trying to do inauthentic behavior online of getting some more high impact um, disinformation out there is a fake persona, fake analyst who has fake credentials, who they can get their piece embedded into more mainstream outlets rather than just these obscure blogs and Twitter accounts that only the converted read. So getting them into kind of these fringe outlets that the unconverted are also maybe reading and think of um, as a little bit more um, mainstream. So I really like this idea of thinking about what success means from the perspective of the bad actor we're talking about. In this case, obviously, we're talking about Russia and and the Kremlin, but um, this notion of getting the unconverted onto your side, this idea or metaphor of conversion, I find really an interesting way to think about it. So... You know, for a long time, I think many of us in the disinformation space were saying, look, uh, the reality is that it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of work to actually build up a, a following 
by, you know, uh, if you're an impersonation account or uh, a fake expert, whatever, like it, it takes a really long time to get thousands of authentic followers. So people who kind of become amplifiers or whatever you put out there, but has the intent always been, or often is from the bad actor perspective to get your content, your idea, your narrative, you want to put out there um, into the broader influencer space, right? To get the New York times or CNN or, individuals who have millions of Twitter followers, we won't use names here, to retweet your stuff. And so are, are we now seeing that, you know, in more recent months, that that continues to be the intent, that it's really not to try to influence the broader public, because it's very difficult to do, as you said, the impact is not only hard to measure, but likely very, very low. Um, so is the intent to kind of get into the influencer space to influence the influencer as a strategy of mass conversion. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah, something you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. That's a much more effective strategy than just your random Twitter person or random troll. So there's kind of two different, um, for a success, I think there's probably two different, um, I don't know, roads to success if you're trying to do inauthentic behavior online to spread disinformation. There's kind of the the negative effect, which is like the info shum. I don't remember who coined this term, but the info shum is like info sound, I guess you could say in Russian, which is just to flood everything out. So you create so much noise and so much, um, I don't know, trash online, and you leave so many comments on blogs and you, you know, you put so much out there that's just like garbage that the good stuff is um, lowers down um, along with this. So this is kind of like dragging down the discourse and, you know, flooding with as much stuff as possible. A success to this could be, for example, like in the Guardian and other newspaper sites, a lot of times they just, they outright disable comment sections because they get flooded by so many um, inauthentic trolls and so on. And also, you know, on in the, the domestic Russian space, this has been pretty successful back. People still use live journal to a degree, but it was very, very popular among, uh, if you're following news in the mid, early mid 2010s, it would, this stuff was just flooded. The IRA, one of their big, um, big activities back in around 2013, 14, were just making endless numbers of um, live journal blogs and posts and trying to flood it. Probably not to change anyone's minds, but more just to um, to maybe disqualify some of the more sane voices out there. So that's kind of the negative um, approach. The more positive approach is what you mentioned earlier of trying to get a um, fringe voice ampl- amplified by someone in the mainstream. So um, RT does a pretty job, good job at this at times in um, amplifying some of the more fringe voices because RT, it doesn't have a huge reach, but it has more of a reach than a lot of these other places. Uh, but the real goal, I mean, if I, if I were, you know, evil genius trying to get disinformation spread or whatever, I would go for um, um, relatively mainstream um, outlets that are on the fringe. So Breitbart, um, Infowars is a little bit too fringe. Places like Breitbart... Um, the blaze, you know, these kind of more French places, you, it wouldn't be too terribly hard if you are really, really put your mind to it to get some kind of disinformation spread on places like that, because their threshold for, um, for proof and evidence and for, I don't know, logical reasoning is a lot lower than the New York times and CNN and so on. So yeah, it, that's, that's the most successful you can have is either the, the flooding, the info stream route or the, the positive route by positive. I mean, like something being um, pushed rather than just, draining other stuff out um, is to try to get something like a fi- fake photo, photo video. If you have something a little more discreet, a certain narrative, a certain idea and get it amplified. And we see this a lot with um, 
the more fringe outlets in the U.S. especially, so in the U.S. and Western Europe. So in 4chan, 8chan, and a lot of white supremacist groups and far-right organizations, this is this is their like explicit strategy. Like they, You can actually see them discussing this on 4chan, 8chan, on their Discord channels and so on. Um, they know that if they come from their personal accounts, they aren't going to change anyone's minds about stuff. But if they can get something put into the into the the live stream of the live stream of the information environment um, by someone a little bit more sympathetic to them on you know maybe a um, a pro Trump right leaning site that maybe is not pro white supremacy but they can get certain ideas put in there kind of like Trojan horses and then spread out there so. A lot of the stuff that we think about abstractly with like Russian and state-sponsored disinformation narratives has been done successfully and extensively by um, extremist organizations and um, especially the white supremacists in the U.S. They do this a lot. Right. This gets to the point that these tactics and strategies are not unique to or specific to state actors, obviously, certainly not Russia. I mean, it's about really the kind of information environment that we find ourselves in as um, a society that provides fertile ground for these kinds of manipulation tactics and influence operations to take hold by whoever sees wants to carry them out, really. And that could be, you know, domestic actors, it could be foreign actors. Um, I think the reality is that it's becoming, it's becoming impossible to even discern um, at times between those two. So I want to go back uh, to the original case study we started with, which was the New York Times article and, and your rebuttal with it. You started to talk a little bit about the Kremlin and, and Russian intent. Uh, and one of the issues that you take up in your blog post is the way that the New York Times article depicted the role and reach of the Kremlin, um, and especially Mr. Putin in carrying out the, the disinformation campaigns and controlling these online entities. Um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, what the problem really was with the New York Times piece and uh, why does why does it matter? Yeah, I think one of the, uh, this is a common trope throughout all reporting on Russia and like kind of the modern criminology is thinking that Russia is a monolithic uh, autocratic state where everything is top down. I mean, many things are top down. I mean, don't get me wrong. Russia is an autocratic state to a degree. But there is a lot of freelancing and um, independent action within the Kremlin, both within the state itself and the presidential administration and different security services and so on, and in state-adjacent organizations um, and individuals. So um, when you see something come out of TV Zvezda, which is the Ministry of Defense's official um, TV station and also news site, not everything in there was personally approved by Shoigu, the defense minister, or by Putin. I mean, it, this is kind of a French site that posts it posts weird stuff. It has like UFOs, and you know, it's kind of a almost Infowars like site where it posts a lot of weird stuff. Just because something's on the Ministry of Defense's site doesn't mean that it's you know endorsed by the Ministry of Defense. It's kind of a complex um, situation with it. Um, and also, there's you know there is media freedom in the Russia to a degree. There isn't a lot of it, but it does exist to a degree. You know. Um, Doge, the TV, the now online TV station, can do some pretty good independent reporting. Novia Gazeta exists, though they have to torpedo some of their stories, it seems like. But, you know, there is independent reporting and there is independent action within the media landscape in Russia, to a degree, of course. Um, so not everything that comes out in a, you know, a far right um, or conservative outlet in Russia is something that Putin personally approved. You know, there's actually a, a lot of white supremacist groups in Russia actually are not very big fans of Putin because they see him as very soft on immigration. 
So when you have a neo-Nazi or a white supremacist group in Russia do stuff, that's not necessarily you know a Russian operation to, you know, to wreak havoc in the U.S. and Western Russia with you know, these far-right organizations. It could just be you know just a regular old neo-Nazi who doesn't like the government, just like you know we have here, who's operating. Um, so I think that it's very important when you do reporting on you know, modern criminology, I guess you could say, in Russia, that you under, that you are very careful about the um, hierarchy and what what the decision making process is and isn't. So um, a lot this is a difficult thing to navigate because Russia is a complicated place, just like most other countries, and it's hard to understand exactly you know where the lines are drawn, who's reporting to whom, who's trying to please whom, who's a freelancer, who's going rogue, you know, all that stuff. Um, but in general, um, just don't assign everything to Putin because he has a relatively small grasp on what happens the day to day with media, media outlets, and with disinformation oper- operations and so on like that. So um, there's a lot of freelancing. There's a lot of people trying to please their immediate bosses, um, you know, trying to impress and run operations. And it turns out this, you know, it's just one guy doing it, trying to, you know, please his middle manager boss. You know, not everything is a state-sponsored operation, though, to be fair, there are many things that are state-sponsored operations. A lot of the hacking attempts, um, you can very clearly draw back to Russian security services because those are things that take a little bit more um, bravery, I guess, to carry out and more expertise. But, you know, some random tweet, some random story um, on a fringe Russian site that probably isn't um, state-sponsored or even state-approved, even if it does agree with what the lines of the Kremlin has been pushing in their official statements and through their um, embassies. Okay, so I guess maybe to summarize, it, it seems to me that like a core thread of your response to the New York Times story is that we need to be careful to resist sort of jumping to conclusions or necessarily buying the most simple and sexy narrative about these operations. You know, these aren't always sophisticated, high impact operations. Sometimes they're just like one dude tweeting something to three people. They're not always all bots, you know, or they're not always paid trolls. They're just, I think, you know, one of the choice quotes from your thing is uh, most often if someone is a jerk to you online or says something nice about Putin, they're doing it for free. Um, you know, like sometimes this yeah. is just uh, the internet um, and it's not necessarily Putin's puppet show. Yeah. Would, would you agree with that sort of general characterization of, of what you said? Um, and if so, or if not, what sort of key changes would you like to see or in reporting on this stuff in the context of the pandemic and the upcoming 2020 US election? Because, of course, there is going to be so much uh, more reporting on this stuff in the next few months. Yeah, this is um, a common theme. Whenever you see anything um, online, one of the most infuriating and common things you see is you see a hashtag trending and everyone's like, oh, it's 8 a.m. in Moscow. This is because Moscow is doing it, right? So like every problem, every domestic problem the U.S., or, or other countries have is like, oh, this is a Russian thing. It's, you know, you could you can get into what the metaphor of the, you know, the external illness is, you know, this is an external malady that's infecting the US, the Russian virus is infecting us and destroying our democratic process and all that stuff. Well, yes, Russia is doing, you know, state sponsored operations and hackings and all that stuff. But we, you know, we have two, um, over 200 years of history of being a dysfunctional state in many different ways. The Russians don't need to do certain things to make, to, you know, increase income inequality or you know, issues with race relations and so on in the U.S. And the, the Russian operations to, you know, maybe inflame some of those things are pretty minor. And I, I doubt there's many, you can probably count on a couple of hands, um, how many people actually took direct action as a response to, uh, you know, a Russian Facebook page um, about Black Lives Matter or whatever. 
but yeah, nuance obviously is this is a pretty obvious low hanging fruit. But yeah, um, talking about nuance is very important and understanding um, what you can ascribe to actual Russian actions and what is just you know just somebody who's being a jerk to you online. This is I know this is kind of very basic, but just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean they're a Russian um, troll or bot. Even if they are Russian, doesn't mean that they're you know a Russian state sponsored bot or troll. Um, this is this as clear as day. You could see this with a lot of the information around. Um, the Tara Reid story around the Biden accusation. Now, I don't want to get into the actual story itself, because that's a whole whole mess and complicated. But there's a lot of people who are trying to say that this is a Russian, like that Tara Reid is a Russian plant, because on some of her tweets, um, there's a there's a tweet thread with four or five thousand likes and a, just as many retweets about how she did not use articles in all of her, like she left out the a and 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 some of their um, her tweets and she didn't have punctuation on everything and she misspelled some words. And so the person said this was um, this was her tweeting in a Russian accent. It was exactly what she said, which is just insane. Um, just because someone doesn't just because someone's doing something you don't like or they agree with you, they don't agree with you doesn't mean that it's a you know secret Russian plot. So, you know, when you accuse someone of being a Russian troll or bot or something being a Russian operation, you need actual evidence for it and not just, you know, this is this, this seems off, therefore Russia. Because, you know, who knows, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a Saudi operation, right? Because this um, Saudi Arabia runs just as many, if not more, um, trolls and disinformation campaigns as the Russian state. But Eric, isn't life so much easier if we can just blame everything we don't like on the Russians? Oh, it makes everything <laughs> so much easier. And I, I mean, I understand to a degree why this is done by many people, because it's a, it's a cop out, right? It's just so much easier to say like, oh, the, the Russian virus is infecting our political process. It's it's not, you know, disenfranchisement and, you know, all these other things we have that are wrong with us. It's, you just say, oh, it's Russia at the end, right? That's it's easy. We can fix it. We just kick the Russians out and everything's good again. And it's also easy from a political standpoint of uh, Democrats or Republicans to blame a foreign state for something that's gone wrong, right? So you, you can say China's the reason for this or Russia's the reason for that, and then everything is wiped away and we don't have to fix anything internally. Well, yes, I think uh, there is a, a real problem, obviously, with state actors using these kinds of tactics um, online and in various other ways, especially when it comes to uh, data breaches to try to at least interfere or meddle in whatever the right word is um, in democratic processes and to try to shift the, the balance of a certain narrative in, in their favor. Um, I think the big question is how do we strike that line as people yeah. who are trying to provide you know, evidence-based, real information to inform policymakers, to inform future research as to how do we assess the real impact of that without understating the problem with it at a political level, but also being very realistic about, you know, what we're really looking at and why does it matter? Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Uh, So we'll leave it there. Eric, thank you very much for joining us today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, our audio engineer this week was Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast in whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.